Hi there, you're listening to the Trinity Community Church Podcast. TCC, a home for you. All right, good morning, Trinity. How are you doing this morning? Good. Before we get rolling, I just feel like God has been putting on my heart. Something going on out there? Um, Have you ever been stuck? I mean, like really stuck. I remember one time we were driving up in the mountains of Colorado, and uh, it was snow transitioning to wet muck mud. And uh, we were in a truck, and the truck tires weren't the greatest, and we got stuck. Have you ever had to dig out a vehicle? We're in the back, and I remember the vehicle pushed down. I got mud all over me because we were stuck. Um, Do you know that every once in a while we get spiritually stuck? You know, when you get physically stuck, you're either digging or you got to hook up a winch or something like that to pull you out of the mud, to pull you out of where you are. Do you know that the Holy Spirit acts like that for us? He pulls us out of our stuckness. I just sense very strong in my heart this morning. Some of you are in a place right now where you have to take a step. You need to make a decision. And you're afraid to make that decision because you're stuck. Your decisions are this. You either got to take a step into something new or you got to step back into what God's called you to be. How many of you know that sometimes standing strong helps you to get unstuck? We get stuck in our own little stuff. You ever, you ever get stuck in your head? I really believe what God wants to do this morning before we even get rolling is to pull us out of where we are. So just shut your eyes for a second. As a church, we rely on the Holy Spirit. It's the presence of God that pulls us along. It's the presence of God that calls us. And how we get unstuck is, as believers is we remember the promises of God. He points us always to freedom. He points us always to purpose. It doesn't matter where you are right now. Today is the day to step back into God and to allow him to bring you close to his heart. He does that through his promises. Who is he? Waymaker. Miracle worker. He's the promise keeper. He is the light in your darkness right now. The Bible says that the steps of the righteous are ordered by him. He will illuminate your steps, beloved. He's the waymaker. Miracle worker. Promise keeper. The light in the darkness. That is who our God is. Who do you need him to be for you today? Reach out ask of him and see if he doesn't show up strong father that is our prayer this morning that god you remind us of who you are and who we are in you we trust and believe that father you have a plan and your plan is better than anything we could ever hope for or imagine so today lord god would you begin to enact your plan and father would you reveal to us the courage and the strength that we need in order to walk it out We love you in your name, and everybody said, amen. Don't forget that God still sits on the throne. All of our little stuff is just little stuff. God's got control of all of it. Don't allow the enemy to turn you inward. He does that. Keep your eyes fixed on him. Are you happy to be here today? Oh, come on. Are you happy to be? There's no pressure. For you Philadelphia Eagle fans, you can't lose today because you play tomorrow. (laughs) What pressure is there? I got pressure. We're playing the Patriots today. I got got pressure. It's good to see everybody. Um, I remember uh, 
gosh, this is a bunch of months ago now, um, I, I found out that a couple of our parishioners had season tickets to the Flyers. And I'm a Pittsburgh Penguin fan, and I don't know if you know this or not, but the Penguin fans, which are godly, holy, and wonderful, are not necessarily received by the Philadelphia Flyer fans. So one of my guys, my buddy Joe, Joe Diamedio, he, um, he said, man, he goes, I got tickets to the Flyers game. I have season tickets, but listen. He says, you cannot act like an idiot. This is not Pittsburgh. He says, if you act like an idiot down in Chicago, we will die. And he told me, he says, and I will, it won't take a second. I will discard you like a, like a tissue. I, I don't care what they do to you. So I promised I'd be on my best behavior. I did wear some Penguins paraphernalia underneath my coat, but it was blue stuff, so you couldn't really tell. Now, I knew we were going to the Penguin game, or excuse me, the Flyer game, but what I didn't know was that Joe's tickets were like just normal tickets. I've been to hockey games before, and you get in, and you know, you go sit in your seats. Usually the seats I'm in are like you can hit your head on the roof of the state of the arena, but Joe's seats were a little different. I didn't know where they were at. We go in there, and and we go down into an area I've never been into before, and we, get, we start walking down to the ice. If you've ever been to a hockey game before, it's a great sport. And we kept walking and walking and walking and walking until literally my nose, I could put my nose on the glass. I'd never been down there before, at least legally. <laughs> so I'm sitting there, we're right next to the opposing you know, bench, which is the Penguin bench, which is my bench. And it's absolutely incredible. I look at Joe, I go, oh, Joe! And he's like, I know. But that wasn't the best part of it. So we get down there, and then with those tickets comes, like, the joy. There's these back areas, and all they have in these back areas are food. Free food. I'm not talking like hot dogs. And I'm talking like food. And there's people serving the food, and all they keep saying is, would you like some more? Yes. And I had meat and I had all kinds of stuff. And then they have a whole dessert section where there's ice cream and pastries and they just load it up. So it was like an intergalactic experience. It was amazing. I think heaven's going to be like that. An endless buffet of good food. And I realized something in that moment. I have experienced hockey games before, but I've never experienced anything like that. I didn't even know a world like that existed where people experience stuff, but there was a whole other level. Sometimes, beloved, when it comes to your faith, you settle for the cheap seats, even though God has offered you so much more. Spiritual buffets, things that you couldn't even hope from or imagine. Sometimes, beloved, we settle for the bare minimum. Jesus did not die to give you the bare minimum. He died to give you abundant life. That is life in the Greek. This is, this is the connotation in the Greek. It is life that begets life, that begets life. Not just life in the future, but life now. That word zoe, which is Greek, means life in the present and life in the future. That's what God gave you. That's what your faith should look like. Our faith was meant to be more. So this entire month, We've been talking about what it means to have this more type of a faith, a deep faith. How do we live deeply as believers? We started out with what it looks like to have our, our priorities oriented by the kingdom. Seek first the kingdom of God, his righteousness, and he'll take care of everything else. Some of you have chaos in your life because your priorities are off. 
Jesus promised if your priorities are aligned, he'll take care of the rest. That doesn't mean your life is going to be easy and chaos-free. What it means is God will see you right through every storm that you have. There's a difference. And then last week we talked about what it means for us to really love God and people. We love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we love our neighbor as ourself. It's equally important in the eyes of God. Today we take one more step. How can you and I experience a deep and a vibrant faith? The best way that I know how to do that, again, is to have the proper posture. You have to orient your life in a way where you are constantly yielded to the Holy Spirit and to God. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 12. If you have our app, if you go to our app, you get all my notes. If you're on the U version of the Bible, look for live events. TCC, you get all my notes. This is a very familiar passage that sometimes we struggle to understand the deep meaning of it. Romans 12.1. I'm going to read it in two different translations. This is 12.1 in the NIV. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Most of you are used to seeing that in that type of a familiar way, whether it's the King James or the NLT or the NIV. I want to read it again in the Passion Translation. This is a paraphrase translation because I like how it flowers it. It says this, Beloved friends, what should be our proper response to God's marvelous mercies? To surrender ourselves to God, to be His sacred living sacrifices, and live in holiness, experiencing all that delights His heart. For this becomes your genuine expression of worship. Now from this passage, we get a roadmap on how you and I can discover what it means to have a proper posture of faith when it comes to our approach with God. If you have the right posture when it comes to God, your faith will be fulfilled, you'll live with purpose, and you'll have peace when you put your head on the pillow at night. How many of you long to have peace when you put your head on the pillow at night, right? So where do we start? Well, let's look at the passage again. The passage says this, Beloved friends, what should be our proper response to God's marvelous mercies? Today we're going to start with God's mercy. What is our proper response to God's mercy? Well, when God impacts your life, I don't know if you know this or not, it evokes in us a response when you look at the scriptures, when God decided to kind of pop in into people's lives, it's kind of cool. When you read the stories in the Bible, you get to see the, the, the snapshots, the movies of how God popped into people's lives. For Moses, it was a burning bush. Remember? The bush is consumed, but it doesn't, it doesn't you know. For, for Paul, or Saul turned into Paul, it was the encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. Every time God's mercy invades you, every time people came into contact with God, it evoked usually one of two responses, fear or faith. How many times in the Bible did you see God show up and people went, ah! Exactly. <laughs> Those are really the two most normal human choices that we have, the human responses. The fear is what? God, I can't. I'm not enough. And the faith is, God, together, we can. So in order for us to have a life that pleases God, you have to approach God, you have to approach His mercy, the response to His mercy has to have a certain posture. 
Now, when God shows up, one thing is very apparent. He's God and we're not. You can wrestle with God all you want in his existence, and we can even with pride say, well, God can do this and he can't do that. And all that stuff is great when God's far away, but when he comes close, you know what that does to humans? It makes us understand, oh, he's not like me. Have you ever had an encounter with God like that? I have people ask me all the time, why does God choose to, when he interacts with people, why, why sometimes do people fall on the floor? Why do people shake? Why? They're coming in contact with a living God. Have you ever seen the old movies when like, you know, the Ed Sullivan show when the Beatles would play and women would lose their minds? Elvis, <laughs> humans, overwhelmed by humanness. If that happens to regular humans, what happens when God moves into the room? We know this, when Moses encountered him in the burning bush, what did Moses request of him? Lord, let me see your glory. What did God say? Uh, you can't see my glory and live. But I'm going to hide you in this rock. And you can see the back end of the trail of my glory. And you might make it. That's the God that we're talking about. Does this, capiche, does this make sense? So again, what is our proper response to God's mercy? Surrender. Yieldedness. That's where faith comes in. Lord, I don't know why you're talking to me. I've done nothing to deserve your goodness. But I'm going to give you what I have, my little loaves and fishes, and I'm going to surrender them to you. Surrender helps us to walk out our faith lives full of faith, not fear. So what does it mean to surrender? The Greek word for surrender, which we see translated in there as offer, is paristeme, which actually means this, to present and to place before in humility. That's what it means to, to offer. Now, how many of you know that there's different ways to offer something? Have you ever offered something willingly, like, you know, maybe it's Christmas Day, and you know that your kid wanted that thing, and you got that thing, and there was such joy, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And you gave him that thing. When you gave him that thing, their, light, their eyes lit up, and it was like the greatest Christmas ever. Not because you received anything other than the response of their gratitude. Have you ever had that happen? I know with kids, it's rare. Gratitude, rare. Like seeing a Sasquatch. There he goes. Right? But have you ever been required to give something that you didn't want to give up? Like, for example, this happens in the Harris house more often than I would like to admit. You know, we, we hide sometimes delicious snacks from each other. You have to. Have you seen Toby John Harris? He's a human garbage disposal. He doesn't eat. Everything to him is a one-serving pack. Family-sized chips, one serving. We don't have clips. We don't need them. I remember I was, uh, I don't know why we had them. I found we had these little packs of Oreos where you got four in a pack. Have you seen those? I don't know what they put in Oreos. It can't be legal in the United States of America. And I found that one little last pack. And it was half open. There were two Oreos left. Two. So I'm sitting in there. It's late at night. And I decided I'm going to eat the, quick, the first Oreo real quick. So I ate it real quick. And I brought the one little Oreo. Just the one. I mean, what good, what good is an Oreo? I brought it out with my little, with my little drink, and I got to the couch, and it, it was like 
Robin had Oreo radar. She goes, hey, she goes, is that an Oreo? Yeah, it's an Oreo. I said, and again, this is, this is when you know, this is where the rubber meets the road. Would you like it? And you know what you, you know, when you say, ask that question, what are you hoping for the response to be? No. No, yes, I would love the Oreo. Gah! And I handed her the Oreo, but I kept my mouth shut because I didn't want her to see the chocolate in my teeth from the one I ate earlier. You give it to her and you step away. She goes, oh, thank you so much. You're like, you're welcome. Do you ever offer things like that? You really don't want to give it? Sometimes we say yes to God, but we say this, Lord, but don't ask too much. Right? Here, here you can have this, but ah, there's a line here, God. I'll go here, but I really can't go there. So I'm going to offer you what I want to offer you. I'm going to keep a little bit back for myself. Beloved, that is not surrender. That is not yieldedness. When you come to God, our response to his mercy is, Lord, I don't know why you want this, but I'm going to give you everything that I have. Here you go. And then you pray. He doesn't send you to someplace you don't want to go. If you're like me, sometimes I try to trick God. You pray prayers like this, Lord, do not send me to Hawaii, any place but Hawaii. You know, Alaska, you go, go, right? So here's the question. When God calls out to you, when he invades your space with his mercy, what is your response? What do you do? What do you say? When he comes in and he shows up practically in your life, what is your response? Is it one of yieldedness and humility? Or does God have to drag you everywhere he takes you? Kicking and screaming. Have you ever had to do that with your kid in the grocery store? You cannot have the toy. You cannot have the toy. You cannot have, just take the toy and shut up. What is the posture of your heart? Are you yielded? Are you open? How do you respond to the mercy of God? So then after that, our response to his mercy, Paul tells us what God is looking for in a sacrifice. Look at the passage again. Beloved friends, what should your proper response to God's marvelous mercies? So as to surrender yourselves to God to be his sacred living sacrifices. So here's the next question. What is a sacred living sacrifice? Now again, when Paul was talking to the Jewish people, they understood very well what sacrifices were. They were very familiar with sacrifices. In the book of Leviticus, God lays out different sacrifices, how they were offered on account for different types of things. Whether they were sins or agreements or whatever, the Jewish people had a sacrifice for everything. There wasn't just one sacrifice. But know this, anytime you had to offer a sacrifice, it was an incredibly personal experience. For example, you know, when the high priest would offer the bull for the sins of the people, they would bring a live bull, they would put their hands on the head of the animal, the live bull, and in that they would transfer their sins to the sin of the bull, and the bull, the death of the bull, the blood of the bull, would make atonement for their sins. So after they would place the hands on the head, then the priest would kill the animal, he'd take the blood and he'd sprinkle it on the door's entrance uh, uh, going to the altar of the tent of meeting. Then they would take the whole animal and they would burn the entire sacrifice up in the fire. 
So this person would give up something that was very valuable to them, this entire animal. So the animal would die, and then the person's sins would be forgiven until the next sacrifice. So when Jesus came, when we talk about him being the Lamb of God, him being the the perfect sacrifice, all of this entire system changed. He became the atonement, the ultimate offering, the ultimate sacrifice for all of our sins. You got your Bibles flipped to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews 9 puts it this way. So Christ has now become the high priest over all good things that have come. He has entered that greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven, which was not made by human hands and is not part of this created world. Verse 12. With his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place once and for all and secured our redemption forever. This is why we don't have to offer bulls and goats and all those things anymore. Verse 13. Under the old system, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of the heifer could cleanse people's bodies from ceremonial impurity. Verse 14. Just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciences from from sinful uh, so that we can worship the living God. For by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to offer uh, to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. So if now Jesus takes the place of sheep and goats and bulls, what does he require of us? He asks us to be living sacrifices, to lay down our everyday living lives, your daily breaths for him. In short, he wants all of you. Just like the bull or the goat or the lamb, that sacrifice was given the entire animal for them. God wants all of you. Remember last week, how did we talk about how, do, how are we supposed to love God? With all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. There's nothing missing. He wants all of us. So let's build on that. He wants all of you. So what does a living sacrifice look like? Well, look at the passage again. If you want to be a living sacrifice, it says, and live in holiness, experiencing all that delights his heart, for this becomes your genuine expression of worship. Look at how the Passion Translation puts this. Oh, excuse me, uh, the NIV. Go to the next one. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Now, what's funny is this. This passage in the New Testament still stays in alignment with the requirement of the sacrifices that were given in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the sacrifices had to embody Two different things. They had to possess two different things to be a proper sacrifice for God. The first is this. They had to be without blemish. Why did God want the sacrifices of the people to be without blemish? Because God wants your best, not your worst. He wants your number ones. He doesn't want your number two, three, four, five, and sixes. Why does God require from us our best? Because that's what he gave us. What better sacrifice could he give us than his only son? Everybody knows John John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. He gave us his best. So again, the first requirement is is you had to be without blemish. The second is this. 
It had to be what God was asking for. The sacrifice had to be pleasing. Couldn't be what we wanted. It had to be what he wanted. These are the same things that God requires of us. When you approach God, again, you have to have the proper uh, understanding where you have to be holy and you have to be the, the, the response. You have to be the sacrifice that God wants in order for you to be received. So let's talk real quick first about what it means to be holy. Now, this is funny because um, when you say the word holy, all of us get these images in our head, don't we? So the Greek word here for holy is hagios, which actually means this, to be set apart, sacred, to be different. Now, when you think of holy, what do you think of? Some of you think of old black and white pictures with women and with their hair in a bun that's 12 foot tall. Some of you think of people in you know, all black. I remember we had a lady in our church in, in Denver who, she was 100 years old, literally. She's 104 now, I think. And she talked about growing up in the church back in the day. She said she was not allowed to wear red. You know why you weren't allowed to wear red? Because the devil wore red. Because we have Polaroid pictures of the prince of darkness with his pitchfork and red suit. Did you know we had that type of technology? We do. Not. Couldn't wear anything flashy. There's no, no makeup. Isn't it funny, all the things you need to be holy, 98% of those things women had to do? What did guys have to do? Keep your hair cut? Don't be dumb, right? Maybe that's a full-time job for us. I don't know. <laughs> now that I think about it. <laughs> holiness. What do you think of when you think of holiness? I remember uh, in our church in Denver. Let me introduce you to somebody. This is, you can go to the next slide. This is Miss Jane holding a pie. She made great pies from scratch. Her pies, I would fight somebody to the death for one of her pies. <laughs> now, this is the unique thing about Miss Jane. Miss Jane was uh, my secretary in, in Denver. And she had been in the church for a long, long time. In fact, you can go to the next slide. This is Miss Jane on her wedding day, like a long time ago. So she grew up in, in, in a holiness church. And the interesting thing about Miss Jane was she grew up at a time, she was an athlete, a female athlete, a good athlete. I mean, we did this one time, we, we, did our, uh, uh, we did our church picnic, and we had this big bocce competition. You ever play bocce? The Italian sport of kings, Right? And her and her boy were, were, were just killing everybody in this bocce thing. And, and I said, Miss Jane, you're so good at this game. How are you so good at this game? She goes, I don't know. I've never played bocce before. And as they, we had, I mean, there was probably 30 teams, and, and they made it to the final round. And I said, Miss Jane, this is absolutely incredible. She goes, I've never played bocce. She says, but she does, she says, I, I have thrown horseshoes in the Senior Olympics. <laughs> you're an Olympian? Maybe. But she was an athlete back in the day when she grew up as, as, as a teenager. And what was interesting was this. Because she grew up in the holiness movement, she had to compete under certain conditions that the other kids didn't have to compete with. She was very fast, but she had to run all of her races in a dress that went down to her ankles. Think about that. There were certain days she couldn't compete on. There were certain things that she couldn't do. And it was funny, you know, her approach, she says, growing up in high school was terrible. They'd have to go out and work in the field. And she grew up in, this, in a place called Fort Morgan. And they were known for their, their, their mascot or the beat diggers. Because they're known for two things. 
Beets and cow manure. Because cow manure makes the best beets. And she'd have to go out and work in the garden in dresses that went down to her ankles. Her, 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 her things, no skin was showing at all. It's just what she had to do because that was the movement that she grew up in. Is that what God is looking for when he talks about us being holy? Does that mean what it means to be holy? For years, we thought if we could just take care of the outside, the inside would follow. And beloved, as a church, we got that wrong. Because how many of you know you could dress up the outside all you want, and unless the heart is changed, none of it matters? So we had people that looked good on the outside, but didn't look good on the inside. I think Jesus had a similar encounter with Sadducees and Pharisees. What did he call them? Whitewashed tombstones. You look great on the outside, but inside you're full of dead bones. We forget sometimes that holy is an adjective. Which means this, it describes a person, a place, or a thing. For example, we use adjectives all the time. You know, the ice cream was delicious. The delicious talks about the ice cream. The movie was inspiring. Inspiring talks about the movie. The Steelers are amazing. I'll just leave that right there. So what does it mean to be holy in terms of God in our spiritual life? Well, we base our holiness first on who off who God is. We know this. We know that God is holy. What does that mean? You're, can I stretch you a little bit? Because we're going to get a little theological. This means this. Among the gods, little, little, little G's, God is like none, none other. He is set apart. There's nobody that's like him. There's nobody that smells like him. There's nobody that compares to his power. Nothing. Not, it's just God. He is holy. He is set apart. He is different. The Holy Spirit why do we call the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit? Because he is that spirit. The Holy Spirit is different than any other spirits. Are you saying there's other spirits? Absolutely there are. The Bible talks about that. Completely different. It's an adjective describing the Spirit of God. So what does that mean for us? For us, it means if we're going to be holy, you cannot be common. You have to be different unlike the rest. If you look like the world and you smell like the world and you do everything the world does, you're not different. If the core of who you are, if your value system is the same value system of this world, you're not holy. You're not holy. If your approach to people is, I got to care about me first and I don't care about anybody else, you're not holy. I don't care how squeaky clean you look on the outside. If you don't embody the heart of who Christ is, who Jesus is, and who the Spirit is. You're not set apart. You're not holy. For us to be holy, that means that we're not like everybody else. And you know what that means, beloved? We are never going to fit in. Did you, ever, did you ever think about this? The church has never done well when it was seated in power and it got its own way. Have you ever thought about that? Do you know why? This world is not our home. We are sojourners. We are passing through. We are salt and light. We give the world flavor. Why do we give it flavor? Because we're different. We'll always be different. What did Jesus say about the world? He said, the world didn't accept me, and because you follow me, they're not going to accept you. Do you ever get upset and hurt? You're like, oh, I just don't I want people to like me. Guess what? 
You pick the wrong faith if you want people to like you. We serve God. He has a plan and a purpose for our life. And we remember that this world is not our home. That doesn't mean we abandon the world. That just means that we're not of the world. Does that make sense? To be holy means that we're not of the world. When God, when, in, in Peter, when, God, when Jesus says, have you ever see, read Peter and Peter says, be holy as I am holy? Have you ever thought like, how is that possible? How can I be like God? You ready for this? You can't on your own power. You need God's help. What is he saying there? Be different like I am different. Now, when we talk about being different, we're not just talking about the outside. We're talking about a transformation that happens in your core. He changes everything here. What makes us different as believers is what happens on the inside of your heart. Transformation begins on the inside, and then eventually from the inside changes the outside. But beloved, it doesn't work the other way around. Because you know what we do? Oh, everybody say, Pastor TJ, we love you. Say, because Jesus said we had to. When you go from the outside in, you know what we do? We make people that look great on the outside, and then we teach them that's all you really need to do in order to have a vibrant faith. Just take care of the outside, God will take care of the rest. And beloved, that is not the gospel. We teach them a false gospel then. Why do we teach people to take care of the outside, not the inside first? You know why? It's for me. So I'm not uncomfortable. So you're just like me. You smell like me. You taste like me. Everything's fine. God wants transformation on the inside. And understand this, beloved. The church was designed to be messy. We're a nursery and a college at the same time. Have you ever been in a nursery? Tell you what, one of the greatest things that was ever given to us when we had our first child was the diaper genie. You know what the diaper genie is? To put the, that's, that's right, Ryan's like, oh, amen, the diaper genie. You put the diapers in there, you twist the thing and like makes little diaper sausages, right? And what does it do? Takes care of the stink. Beloved, if we're doing our job, we are also a nursery, which means this, there will be mess in our church. Why? We have babies. Churches that don't have babies are churches that are not alive. Did you hear me? We'll always have mess. And on a weekly basis, I get emails from people, Pastor, why is this person doing this? Pastor, why? Because they're spiritual babies. And because you sent me an email, it shows me you're also a spiritual baby. <laughs> if you sent me an email, I'm so sorry. <laughs> That's the one person who goes, <laughs> you know who you are. This is what Romans 12, 2 says. Don't copy the behavior and the customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person. Ready for this? By changing the way that you think. Why is it important for God to change the way you think? Because right here, your mind is who you are. Where your mind goes, your soul will go. Those are your emotions. Where your mind goes, your body will go. That's your strength. God renews your mind. He does. It says, then you'll learn to know God's will for you, which is good, pleasing, and perfect. <gasps> Didn't we just see that word pleasing somewhere else? What kind of sacrifice does God want? Pleasing. Holy and pleasing to him, right? So holiness is more than just the things that you do. It deals with the heart, the things behind the things. So God does the work of transformation for us. 
And then we see holiness, or holiness, what that work inside of us is made evident by how you and I interact with people in the world around us. What happens is this, God gets a hold of our heart, and then we become living, breathing examples of God's heart. We're just different. Everything changes. Your heart, your heart for people, people don't become problems. They become beautiful, beautiful opportunities to introduce them to love and the power of Christ. But we, we live that out. People are watching us all the time. I remember I was in the city of Chicago, and um, there was a young man that was kind of tagging along with me. Freddie Ruiz. We used to call him Freddie Boom Boom Ruiz. He's one of our drummers. He's a big, red-haired Latino kid. His mother was Irish. His dad was Latino. And we were in Walmart, and he was talking about wanting to get into fishing. So I said, let's go to Walmart and get you a fishing pole. So we're in the city of Chicago at a Walmart. Have you ever been at a Walmart in the city of any place? It is insane. I'm not talking like Hocassin. I'm not talking like Wilmington. I'm talking like New York, Philadelphia, Chicago. Look like Christmas all the time. So we're there in the, in the, um, you know, the sporting goods section, and I'm showing him. They got these fishing rods called ugly sticks. Have you ever seen ugly sticks? And they're, I don't know why they call them ugly sticks. I just know this. They're supposed to be unbreakable. So I knew Freddie Boom Boom Ruiz. I knew how he treated stuff. I said, this kid needs an unbreakable fishing pole. So we go up there and I go, Freddie, we got to get you this. It's cheap. I said, look, I said, and they're unbreakable. And I go like this. And you know what I did? I broke the ugly stick. <laughs> I did. I didn't realize they're just unbreakable in theory. I'll never forget this. You know, I'm like in my, I don't know, my mid-20s. I break the stick, and Freddie looks at me and goes, run, dog, and he takes off. <laughs> now, two things. One, I'm not a dog. <laughs> two, I don't run for anything unless it's danger or the ice cream man. Right? Are those the bells? Run, dog, and then we go get it, right? So I took the fishing pole up to the counter. Freddie was looking behind a, a, a display. I said, ma'am, I'm so sorry. I said, I, I, I broke the unbreakable, the unbreakable fishing pole. I said, what do I need to do? Pay for it. She said, oh, don't worry. It happens all the time. I came back and Freddie came up and he goes, I've never seen that. I said, seen what? He goes, well, you, you broke it. Nobody was here. All you did do was hide it and just get out of Dodge. I said, Freddie, I said, we don't do that as believers. We just don't do that. Just that simple act impacted him. You know what that is? Holiness. Holiness. Did you ever think that that was holiness? But it is. Why? Because it's different. We're set apart. People should know that we're different, not just by our words. Do you know that words are cheap? Do you know people are tired of us speaking our words? Words without substance, words without depth, words without something behind them. They want to see action. 1 Peter 2.12 puts it this way. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they'll see your honorable behavior and they'll give honor to God when he judges the world. Did you see the progression? When you decide to live in holiness, other people will see it. Even when bad things are talked about you because as believers, you're not of this place. That means bad things are going to be spoken of you. And the way you live doesn't point them to you. Where does it point them to? God. They'll say, oh my gosh, because you did this, God must be real. That's how the progression goes. 
To be holy means you need to be different. So the sacrifices have to be holy. You have to be a living sacrifice that is different. And then the second is this. The sacrifice has to be pleasing. What does it mean to be pleasing? The sacrifice has to be the proper sacrifice, what God is asking for. So in the Old Testament, there were certain sacrifices, certain things that you had to give for certain sins. Now, those sacrifices were also dependent on your status in society. For example, if you were to look at the sin offering. Now, the purpose of the sin offering was to, was to transfer your sins, like we talked about, to an animal. The animal would be killed, and then the blood of that animal would cover your sins. Now, when you look in Leviticus, in the Old Testament, there were five possible sacrifices that you could use for the sin offering that were dependent on who you were and your status in the society. The five different sacrifices that you could sacrifice, according to Leviticus, were a young bull, a male goat, a female goat, a dove or a pigeon, or a tenth of an ephah, a fine flour, which is basically a bucket about the size of a two-liter pot. Now, the type of animal that you offered depended on, again, your identity, your gender, and all these different things. For example, a female goat was the sin offering for a common person. If you're a common person, you're required to bring a female goat that was without blemish, and they would sacrifice the goat for your sins. If you were a poor person, your offering was the two-tenths of an ephah, a fine flour, a two-liter thing of fine flour. Why? because it was cheaper. If you were a priest, the high priest, your offering was a bull. That was for you and for the congregation of everybody. Here's my point. Jesus, God had different sacrifices that equated to different things. God requires certain things from us at certain times and certain situations. The big point is this. God sets the terms of that. We do not. He tells us what he wants from us. He lays out for us what a pleasing sacrifice is. We don't get to make the call on that. He does. So if you want to live a life that's pleasing to God, you have to do that on his terms, not yours. So what does a sacrificial life look like? What embodies us to be sacrifices that are pleasing to God? What does a God-pleasing faith look like? You know, when you say faith, everybody gets in their minds all these different things. If you grew up in, as a Catholic or if you grew up in orthodoxy like I did, probably for you, you know, faith looks like going to Mass or going to that service at least once a week. If you're good, you go multiple times a week. If you're intergalactic, you also do confessional and you do all the stuff. Guys, I understand, trust me, I did not grow up in this. I grew up in orthodoxy. You know, maybe if you grew up Baptist, that meant, you know, you go to church on Sunday, then you have the meal Sunday night, which is usually fried chicken. That's just what I heard. And then you're there, you know, for the rest of it. Or maybe you grew up in a place where you had prayer meetings. You had to be at church every time the doors were open. What is a full-fledged life of faith, a pleasing sacrifice look like to God? It really embodies three things. First, it has to embody faith. What does it mean? Your spiritual life your walk with God has to have an element of faith in it. It just does. We call it faith for a reason. If your faith requires no faith from you, it's not faith at all. You belong to a really nice club. 
like the Rotary Club? Does your spiritual life require faith from you? When is the last time you had to take a step of faith? When's the last time you had to allow God to to use you to step out for more than you were comfortable with? Maybe talking to somebody about Jesus, maybe in giving, maybe in just sacrifice. When is the last time you gave God the opportunity to stretch you beyond things you were comfortable with? If you want to live a life that's pleasing to God, it has to have an element of faith. Hebrews 11.6 says this, It is impossible. Everybody say impossible. It is impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe that God exists. And he rewards those who sincerely seek him. That means this. Every day when you come to God, you got to say, Lord, okay, I'm surrendering who I am to you today. I'm yielding myself to you. Help me to hear you when you ask me to do stuff. And Lord, give me the courage to just do what you ask me to do. That is a life of faith. When's the last time you prayed that prayer? If you haven't prayed that prayer, I got good news for you. You can pray it today. Make it a part of your daily life. Second, if you want to have a life that's pleasing to God, it has to be fruitful. Why does God give us fruit? Why does he talk about fruit, the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians and all that stuff? To show you the work that's happening on the inside of you. If you're a believer and you produce no fruit, you're either really sick or you're not a believer at all. Your life should produce something that resembles the fruit of the Spirit. It should. It has to. Why? Healthy things grow. How many of you would tend to a garden if your garden never yielded fruit? I got that garden again. This year I'm hoping for that tomato. Why would you even bother? Do you really have an orchard if you have trees that never produce apples? Can you call it an orchard? God wants you to be fruitful. Colossians 1, 9 and 10 says this. So we've not stopped praying for you since we've heard about you. We ask God to give you the complete knowledge of his will and to give you spiritual wisdom and understanding. Look at verse 10. Then the way you live will also honor and please the Lord, and your lives will produce every kind of good fruit. All the while you'll grow as you learn to know God better and better. Your lives are designed to produce fruit. And finally, what does a pleasing sacrifice look for? You have to have faith in your life. You have to produce fruit. Third, you have to favor others. A pleasing sacrifice does not look to its own interests. It looks to the interests of others. Think of the very nature of a sacrifice. You know the story of, you know, this is going to be nuts, you ready for this? This is my life, but a little window into my world. You know what we were doing the last couple weeks? Planning Christmas. Fa la 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 la. Do you ever think about how amazing the story of Christmas is? Jesus was born where? Bethlehem. Do you know what Bethlehem was known for? You biblical scholars? Bread? What else? Sheep. Bethlehem was the producing city for sheep for Passover. Bethlehem was about, really, the most important thing they did was was bread, and they produced sacrifices. Here's something that was common with every sacrifice. The sacrifice did not represent itself. It lived for somebody else. 
Do you know that the same thing was true with Christ? He was the living sacrifice. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. God, if it's possible, take this cup from me. But if not, your will be done, not mine. As believers, a living, pleasing sacrifice means that we favor others above ourselves. If your faith is all about you and your comfort and all your stuff, that's not a pleasing sacrifice to God. A pleasing sacrifice doesn't say, God, well, what about me? A pleasing sacrifice says, Lord, I don't know what I have, but I'm going to give you all of it. We are the, the loaves and the fishes people. We give what little we have. Is your faith about you and your comfort, or is your faith, is there an element of your faith that says, God, anything you need from me, what can I do to help somebody else come to know you? You know, and in, in, this is nuts. In like six weeks, we're going to have our family fest here. We're going to have three to 4,000 people on our site, most of which don't have any idea who Christ is. You know what they need from us? They need to experience God's love, power, and presence through you. A few years ago, we, had, uh, we have a family that's in the church now, and I asked them, I said, why are you guys here? They came at a family fest the first time they came. They said, you know what brought us into this family fest? I said, what? They said, you. And I went, all right. Was it my stories? My, my Greek charm, my humor. You know what they told me? We saw you emptying trash at Family Fest. We didn't know who you were. We just saw you emptying trash. And then somebody later said, that's our pastor. And they said, because you're emptying trash, we were like, we got we to gotta see a pastor that empties trash. You know what that is? That's favoring other people. Is that part of your DNA? They don't need to know who you are. They see God in what you do. That's what happens when you favor others. Hebrews 13, 16 says this, and don't forget to do good and to share with those in need. These are the sacrifices that please God. Do those things describe your walk with Christ? Are you yielded to God? Are you holy? Does that mean are you set apart? Does your life reflect a sacrificial life? If you want to have a deep, vibrant faith, beloved, you have to have the right posture. Coming to God yielded, open, and broken. Bow your heads with me. I want you just to take a minute and talk to the Holy Spirit. Again, the Holy Spirit speaks to you just like he speaks to me. The Bible tells us this about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit searches us. Ask him, say, Lord, I want to be a living sacrifice. Am I a sacrifice that pleases you? And if not, Lord, what needs to happen in me so that you can help me to shift my posture so I can be? Guys, please hear me today. I'm not here to speak in condemnation. My heart is for you. I know this. When God has all of us, individually, our hearts as a church, he can do amazing things for the kingdom through that. So take a minute, talk to the Holy Spirit, and then listen. Thanks for listening to the Trinity Community Church Podcast. We hope this met you exactly where you are. To learn more about us, head to our website at tccde.com or follow us on social media at Trinity Community Church. TCC, a home for you.